Actually, Nat, do you have your emperor cave on? I do. Okay, I don't. Two seconds, sorry. Yeah. Our emperor cave is our, we put blankets over our heads when we're recording these. E. Why? <laughs> it's a good question because it does actually like help with the, just the audio quality of the rooms that the both of us are in. Mm. Should I put a blanket over my head? No, you, you don't have do to. not have to. <laughs> you know, okay. my favorite why. <laughs> You're gonna hear it. it's gonna make the sound so much better. Okay. It feels like a little more intimate when we're in the blanket. <laughs> this is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where the underground bars are actually underground because fallout. But on the upside, all the bartenders are androids with cat ears and their batteries never run down. I'm your host, Nino. And I'm your host, Nat. And today we are back with our favorite foremother, Octavia Butler, talking about one of her less well-known series, Xenogenesis, also known as Lilith's Brood. Um, This was three books published between 1987 and 1989, and the series covers nuclear apocalypse, alien collectivism, Mars colonization, third genders, alien-human polycules, and so much more. Before we get to the plot, a couple of quick things. One is just a note on positionality. Nat and I are both white, trans-masculine folks, and we're bringing that position to our reading of this novel. And we wanted to recognize that as much as Butler's work resonates with us and with so many marginalized folks across every kind of identity in life, a lot of the themes here are really coming from the context of Black American experience. So for that reason, and also because it's just so jaw-droppingly good, we wanted to recommend again to folks that if you love Octavia Butler, please go check out the podcast Octavia's Parables, which is Black queer artist and organizers Toshi Regan and Adrian Marie Brown talking about Butler's novels. Again, that's Octavia's Parables. It is such a delightful, deep podcast and a great listen. Okay, so we also wanted to take just a second to mention Patreon. Yes, we are making a ton of fun media that is for our Patreon subscribers, including our feature, What If My Dude? Which which is just super fun and silly, Nat and I living in our many multiverse fantasies. We also do Extended Universe, which is a fantastic reading list. If you really want to get into the topics we do here on Quiz at the End of the World, maybe you want to teach with us or just think along with us and be part of the conversation. You can join us at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. Yeah, we hope to see you over there. So getting into the plot of Xenogenesis, um, this is a huge series and we're going to kind of talk about it as a whole. So we're going to keep the plot summary pretty high level for that reason. But Xenogenesis is three books, Dawn, Adulthood Rights and Imago. As we said, they're all written before the fall of the Berlin Wall for any of y'all who were not alive then. And that is really reflected in the catastrophe that acts as a starting gun for this apocalypse, which is a world-ending nuclear war. Like world-ending in the sense of like all the humans, all the animals and plant life, like basically the earth is destroyed. But we don't really know that when the book begins, it starts in a prison cell with Lilith, our protagonist, who is being held captive by 
an entity. She doesn't know what it is. Um, on the day we meet her, she's just received clothing for the first time in her who knows how long captivity. Lilith is a black woman in her mid-twenties. She had a son and a husband who she lost at some point before the war in a car crash. That war is the last thing she remembers before waking up in an almost featureless room where she's been held and interrogated without ever seeing her captors for what might be years. She has no way to know how long it's been. It turns out, we soon learn, that the entities that captured Lilith are an alien species called the Oankali. The first Oankali Lilith meets is vaguely humanoid, with sensory tentacles all over its body, that it can use to tap into Lilith's body and mind, or really to learn about and even communicate with any other organism. The Oankali have recognized that human beings as a species have a fatal genetic flaw that they call the contradiction. Essentially, (laughs) humans are really smart, but really hierarchical. And that means they were basically genetically predetermined to blow themselves and their whole species to smithereens. Accurate. Yeah. Anyway, the Owen Collie have rescued a few hundred humans, all that were left, from the radioactively trashed remnants of the planet and have been learning about them on their orbiting ship while restoring the planet below. They are a race of genetic traders that scour the galaxy for useful traits in other organisms, then meld their DNA with those strangers in order to create new versions and adaptations of themselves. They're interested in humans in general, and Lilith in particular because of cancer, the wildly adaptive cells of which will allow them to change in new ways and at unusual speeds. They live on living spaceships, which are the result of a previous trading relationship. Indeed, everything in the Oankali's ecosystem developed through genetic trades. The Oankali have been traveling in the universe for millennia, seeking new organisms to trade genetic material with. All their technology is biotechnology from their transportation to their living hypersleep bags, which are a kind of giant worm. So basically, the Oankali want to breed with Lilith and get her to wake up and lead the remaining humans, bringing them around to the fact that the Oankali cannot be resisted and get everyone on board with their new hybrid future. Lilith is understandably ambivalent about this, and there's a lot of drama in this book around how much the Oankali don't know about humans and how, because the humans have so much less power physically and really in almost every other way in this relationship, that lack of understanding makes life really fucking hard for the humans. The only power that the humans do hold over their Owen Kali captors is how much the Owen Kali want them. And when I say want, I am talking about like sexy, tentacular, palpitating desire. <laughs> this is a very sexy series. Um, softcore tentacle porn abounds. If the Oankali can't mate with humans and form their complex five-entity family structures, which consist of one Oankali male, one Oankali female, one human male, one human female, and one third-gender Oankali Uloi, then the aliens will fall into depressions that are so severe that sometimes their bodies can literally disintegrate, which is pretty emotionally manipulative, if you ask me. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. (laughs) (laughs) So... Lilith does agree to mate with the Oankali and lead the humans. Her primary relationship is with an Oankali Uloi named Nikanj. Uloi are super important, so let's talk about them for a second. So again, the Oankali have three genders, male, female, and Uloi. Uloi are the genetic engineers whose genetic engineering organ is central to what the Oankali are and how they reproduce. 
Basically, they have this DNA storage and mixing sack inside themselves. And outside, they have two enormous penis-like tentacles that hang out under their arms and can be used for sex and healing. Once a human male and female have mated with an uloi, they're bonded. And the male and female can no longer touch each other without revulsion unless the uloi is there. Nikanj, Lilith's uloi, is super sexy and powerful. He mates with Lilith and a human male named Joseph, and Lilith and Joseph attempt to prepare a group of other humans to recolonize Earth and start the interspecies breeding program. Things go awry because humans are humans, and some of them are really grossed out by what the Owen Collie are doing, while others of them are just power-mongering dicks. The dicks and the ones who hate colonialism form a sort of alliance and become what the book calls resistors those who resist breeding with the Owen Collie. Along the way, they murder Joseph, and we learn that the resistors have been made sterile by the Owen Collie. The only way they can have children is by having hybrid children with their alien overlords. Mm. Okay. I, I was just like thinking about how Nikanj is like the protagonist of Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> like Butler is doing a ton with sci-fi tropes, but also like romance tropes too. Like, you know, instead of him being like the bookstore owner who's going to like take over her bookstore, he's like the alien who's going to take over her genetic material. I can see that parallel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in book two, we're back on Earth with Lilith's interspecies colony and the resistor outposts. We meet Aiken, the first male child born to a human mother, who again is Lilith, our main character from book one. So thus far, the Owen Collie have only allowed males to be born to the Owen Collie females because human males are so aggro and scary. And as the first of his kind, Aiken is trying to figure himself out. There's a lot of that in this book. So a lot of just like self-exploration, like what am I, who am I, thinking about gender and bodies. So Aiken is really drawn to the resistors, those humans who refuse to mate with the Owen Kali, even though they're violent and scary and rapey and child kidnappers. Eventually, some of them kidnap him and he ends up with a resistor village. Basically, the resistors are kidnapping kids because they can't have babies of their own. The Owen Kali made them sterile. So they are baby obsessed. They kidnap the most human-looking of the hybrid babies that are born to the Oenakali human families, and then they're super disappointed when those children go through puberty and start to grow up and change into their more alien bodies. When they get him as a baby, Aiken looks almost totally human, so he's very valuable to the Resistors. He tries and mostly fails as he grows up to build a bridge between the Resistors and the Oenakali human hybrid camps, but he does eventually manage to convince the Oenakali that for sterility will never win the humans over, and that the choice that they've offered the humans between assimilation or a drawn-out death is messed up. The Oenkali can't give the resistors the Earth to live on because the Earth is slowly being eaten by the Oenkali's living spaceships, so that by the time the Oenkali launch off into the universe in a few hundred years, the Earth is going to be nothing but a mostly digested shell. Since they can't give them Earth, what they do is offer to terraform Mars, and the Oenkali set about creating a third option for the human resistors on the once-red planet. Humans who don't want to hybridize can go to Mars. And then the question that the book kind of leaves us with is, will the humans who live there just fuck things up again by making a new nuclear arsenal? So the third book follows the life of Jodas, the first Uloi child born to a human mother, again, Lilith. While the Martian colony is now a reality, life on Earth is still plagued by the violence of the resistors, since those who haven't gone to Mars are pretty much just violent assholes. 
Jodas eventually finds a group of particularly secluded humans who have managed to breed without alien intervention, though they're so inbred that their children are covered in tumors and other genetic malformations. Jodas and their second-ever human Uloi sibling both manage to get mates from among these particularly enticing humans. The other Oankali find out about this exciting new tumor fest down on Earth, and they all want in. The book culminates in a confrontation between humans and Oankali. The humans ultimately consent to the Oankali invasion, and while some of them decide to go to Mars, others decide to mate The series concludes with a tense but effective truce drawn between human hybrids and human holdouts, whose hatred of their colonizers is somewhat diffused by the new Martian option they've been offered, while the Owen Kali have had to accept the even more radical changeability that the human Uloi mistakes like Jodas represent, as well as the possibility that allowing some unhybridized humans to persist might be a mistake. The books end with the Owen Collie learning to accept the moral limits of their own control and the unknowability of the future. Man, that is quite a long ride. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such an exhaustive and expansive series. The TLDR of it is like alien colonizers, alien sex, complicated feelings. <laughs> 100%. So, Nat, when we were first talking about the book um, and what we wanted to say on this episode, one of the things that came up was this idea of consent, which is, you know, really one of the central themes of the book, and how the lack of consent or maybe the ways that consent is troubled and undermined by the power relationships in this book and by drugs, by necessity, by so many things, kind of makes the sexiness of those scenes sort of fraught. Um, I was, I was like, (laughs) I was like, no, this is bad and wrong. And then you were like, but it's really sexy. And I was like, yes, um, it is really sexy. And then you were like, it's sexy, but it makes me feel ashamed. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So all of this made me really want to bring someone into the conversation who both of us know and who really loves to talk about just these exact ideas. And that is my friend E-Ray. E-Ray is a performer, a playwright, gardener, and astrologer, and they also have a kink practice. So I thought they would be a wonderful person to bring into this episode for a conversation around kink and consent and, you know, all of its utopian and liberatory possibilities. So E-Ray, welcome to Queers at the End of the World. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So happy to have you. And let's get right into it. E, how did you get into kink? My OG kinky relationship was probably from growing up in an evangelical church and hearing all these like very erotic stories about, um, yeah, like Jesus on the cross and, um, (laughs) you know, drinking blood, eating bodies. There was a kind of um, eroticism and how I was taught to relate to the divine, the way that people talk about like loving God. And I think um, that was maybe the hook for me um, in terms of this kind of like dark part, um, dark, hungry part of my brain. I think in terms of actual kink practice, I know y'all are gonna, y'all have these questions about consent, but I think, you know, when I was in my early 20s and exploring my queer sexuality and in college, you know, some of the sex 
I was having, I thought was kinky, but it actually wasn't because it wasn't founded in consent or Mm. um, negotiated kink. And I think fundamentally kink is all about consent and starting with really clear discussion about like what dynamics are at play. So I think for me, like uh, actual kink practice started when I left an unhealthy relationship that I had been in in my early 20s and started learning more about myself and my body and my sexuality and consent. It's interesting to hear you say that sort of it's not kink without consent. Mm. The book that we're talking about in this episode, Xenogenesis, like the sex really troubles consent, but because Mm. it's Butler, it's just more complicated. Desire kind of messes with the power relationships in some ways, like Lilith, who's the human in this relationship. Her choices of yes and no are all constructed within the context of this decision that has been made for her, which was to be saved by the aliens. And they decided she would be a good leader. So she's sort of like in this position that she didn't get to choose. And But her desire is also so present in the relationship. Like she's just like, I find this alien so fucking hot. I love its tentacles. I love the way it makes me feel. And one of the questions that I have when I'm thinking about like my reaction to those scenes, I imagine that in kink play, like there's a lot of negotiation of the different currents of power. Like because in real life, outside of sci-fi novels, desire is also within the context of power relationships that have nothing to do with the particular sex itself, but can be like socially constructed in all these ways. And I'm wondering, like, how do you negotiate those? And like, how is consent and kink different than like the way that we might understand it if we were thinking of it as something that's only possible when there's like a completely equal power relationship? Hmm. So I think the first thing I want to say is like, you're, you're asking this question about power and how do you have consent when there's unequal power? Or a power exchange, right? Yeah, yeah. This might sound dirty. I don't think power is bad. I don't think wanting to have power is bad. I don't think wanting to give over power to someone else is bad. Mm. I think what is bad is when people seize power without the consent of others, It could also even be bad to give someone else power over you without their consent. Yeah. So perhaps I should tread lightly because I haven't read the book. But one thing I do want to say is that I think there's a lot of puritanism in the way that sexual or erotic fantasy is consumed in kind of like American culture. Mm. And I think that it is important to separate fantasy from reality. Mm-hmm. And I think that a healthy erotic fantasy life is very powerful. So is Butler condoning what seems like a colonial, like characters aren't negotiating consent in the way we might in real life? Maybe. But if it's hot for me to think about 
aliens coming and like forcing themselves upon me, (laughs) then like that's hot for me to think about. And I think that if I feel like I'm bad or like I have internalized oppression um, (laughs) because like that's hot to me, then it, there's something a little puritanical going on there. In my opinion. Right. So if we want to talk about fantasy with kink, and I I will also talk about consent with kink, it's like there's a lot of inability in Puritan American culture with fantasies that we might call dark, that like flirt with taboo, that flirt with death, that flirt with violence. And so not having read the book, we can have stories that we tell that like if I wanted to reenact some some non-consensual hot alien tentacle sex, because that, <laughs> that fantasy is exciting to me. Really? I'm not going to do something to my partner without their consent. I'm going to talk to my partner and I'm going to say, Hey, I was like having this fantasy. Like, does this, what do you, like, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. You know? And if they're like, Ooh, like, you know, like, okay, well, and then, and then what if it was this, you know, and then we can right. like, do a thing. I feel like that's so helpful to me in thinking about this book and like the ways in which sometimes maybe we talk about, these fantasy novels as sort of artifacts that we're trying to think through, like, what do they mean for us? Like, as queer people in this moment, it's like, that the fantasy can kind of mean something as a fantasy, as opposed to being like, well, how do I apply this lesson to my life? Mm. Like, like, there's an experience of the eroticism in the novel that is its own experience. Mm. Yeah, totally. Well, Speaking of play, I I wanted to ask you this question about as a game designer, I feel like there's actually a lot in common between the conversations folks have in kink practices and the things people do when they make games, Mm. Um, which is, of course, this idea that like when you sit down to play a game with people, there's kind of a process or like almost this like ritualized co-creation of a space that the game delineates, which we call the magic circle in, in game design and in game studies. And the idea in the magic circle is we suspend the normal rules of reality and then we bring in the rules of the game. And then within that space, that's where play is happening. Yeah. I mean, obviously that seems really similar. Yeah. I mean, I feel that you just described like a kink play session, like what's happening. Well, I'm, I, like, I'm so interested in that. Like, I think some critics in game studies have talked about like maybe reconsidering the notion of a magic circle as having firm, inviolable boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, like not thinking of it as this is a space where we can quote unquote do anything and then return to the real world without consequences. Mm. Because like we like to kind of understand that it is porous in some ways um, yeah. with what we do in the real world. I'm curious, like especially when what happens in the play session is sacred, transformative. Are there ways that that can kind of move out into the external world of the magic circle? And I don't know. I'm always curious, like how that happens or how that doesn't happen, and what the tools are. One thing I want to say is that. There's a lot of different ways of engaging in kink, and I I can talk about my experience. It's not going to speak for everyone. But one thing that is just immediately coming to mind is that there is such a thing as entering contained play space, like, like what I would call like a play session. 
mm-hmm. where you're going to sit down with your play partner, sometimes like days in advance, and have a conversation about what you both want, what you don't want, what your limits are, um, things you might, how you might want to feel, um, how you're feeling that day. And we call that negotiating. It's kind of like mapping out, like, where are we? And that could mean we're going to decide together, we're going to do this and this and this, or it could mean these things are on the table. These things are off the table. This is what I want to feel you know, I'm giving you control to like work that Mm -hmm. out. So the negotiation space can look different. But for me, having the clear negotiation is actually really important in terms of building what you would call the magic circle. Um, Mm -hmm. And then being able to step over a threshold together into a space where things are heightened and where I can allow kind of a more um, primal, perhaps part of myself that I keep tamed most of the time where I can let it be free in this particular kind of space, um, that is built on mutual trust and love and support. So in this kind of space, if I have a relationship with someone and I'm, I'm stepping over a threshold and I'm entering a play space where I'm going to, um, I don't know, on Saturday night, I was like spanking my partner with vampire gloves, which make you bleed. And we were giggling and it was like amazing. Um, so maybe I'm going to do that, you know? <laughs> and then it's like, you know, and then it's like, we're going to end the session, right? And there's also like a closing of the threshold and like that we call aftercare kind of coming down, right? From these really like heightened archetypes you embody. If we like are going out to dinner the next day, I may not be like embodying this sadist that is like drawing blood, but that intimacy is there and present in the room. Just like if you have vanilla sex with someone and then you're going to dinner the next day, it's not like so compartmentalized, right? Yeah. I'm thinking about like how much what you're describing is sort of bringing out the power dynamics that already exist i mean you know talking about like the way that that folks can have vanilla sex and then go to dinner and like still in that experience Mm -hmm. but also like i I don't know like as as i was like discovering my butch identity Mm -hmm. you know sometimes i would find myself in relationships where i was like doing so much service Mm -hmm. and like i didn't know how it happened (laughs) like Mm -hmm. how did it happen that i'm like always the person helping you move (laughs) and i don't want to (laughs) But it's like there's these sort of power dynamics that are created by other social constructs and they're not necessarily brought out. So there's like this thing in kink relationships where part of what you're describing is like making it explicit. Mm. Yeah, totally. Explicity is very hot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Explicitness is explicitity a word. It is now. Yeah. (laughs) It's like the explicitness of explicitness. Yeah. I have one last question for you before we let you go. You mentioned archetypes a minute ago, and you're a multimedia artist, you're a performer. Um, You've also had a practice of astrology for many years, which is another practice in which archetypes come to bear. And we've been talking a lot about the stars this season, um, Mm -hmm. in the sense of like traveling too, but 
thinking about roles and role play and archetypes and seasons. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit, and this is another like huge question, but about how these practices intertwine for you. Like kink, performance, astrology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a great question. I think that I love storytelling and I, you know, was raised very religious. And I think I learned at an early age that like story is a container for the sacred. Mm -hmm. And when I'm entering kink space that's a sacred space for me and it's a storytelling space and it's a space in which I can step into any number of archetypes right Mm. I have like multitudes within me right and I think what is so beautiful to me about astrology is we're working with these archetypes as gods, right? And we have these myths that each of the planets is like, is a God and has a story that goes along with it. And Mm -hmm. kink for me ultimately is like about being witnessed and witnessing. And I think what astrology does is it helps me see how I'm being witnessed by the entire universe and how my individual story is a part of these like greater stories and myths. Right. So when I'm sitting down with someone to talk about their chart, we're storytelling. And when I do performance work, I hope that it is also sacred storytelling and communicating what I can with myth. So I think that's how all of those get tied together for me. Ah, that's so beautiful. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> being, being seen by the stars. Thank you so much for this, Eve. This yeah, wonderful. thank you so much. Yes, thanks for having me. Listeners, if you're excited about Eray's astrology practice, you can learn more about it and them at erayastrology.net. That's E-W-R-A-Y astrology dot net. Also, just a note for patrons, we had to edit this interview kind of heavily for time, but there will be a more lightly edited version up on Patreon as some bonus content over the next month. All right, so now that we've talked about how hot this tentacle sex is... Um, and we've and we've acknowledged that we should not feel ashamed of finding the tentacle sex hot, which yes, <laughs> yes, I feel like um, I feel like we've also sort of illuminated something for me that is a little bit freeing in talking about the book, which is I think that there's a way in which I approached this book when I read it the first time where I felt like so often the sex feels kind of like kinky sex, but it's not quite. And then there are also aspects of the book that feel very queer. and like the ways that queerness is deployed in the book feel really ambivalent like and and i think that there are ways in which the the sex itself is kind of coded as queer Mm-hmm. i agree with that totally i mean one of the hottest sex scenes in the book is like the moment when lilith 
and Nikanj and Joseph, Joseph is Lilith's first human partner, have sex for the first time. And it's like much more consensual for Lilith than it is for Joseph. She's like, let's go. She like rips her jacket off and like grabs his tentacle (laughs) or grabs its tentacle, right? Like in the book, the pronouns of Nikanj are it. So like. Oh my gosh. Relentless misgendering of Nikanj. (laughs) We apologize, Nikanj. We're trying. Now I'm the like uh, not trying hard enough uncle in this room. Um, 100%. Yep. (laughs) So yes, Lilith rips off her jacket and grabs its tentacle. (laughs) It's like, get, get your little tentacles into me. And right before that scene, like the sort of inciting incident for that is that a group of like really mean humans who are violent and scary have called Joseph a faggot and threatened to kill him. Yes. Yeah. There is very much this sense of these like mean, cruel, judgmental group of straight people are outside. (laughs) And like you have this kind of like beautiful like scene of joining and some kind of intimacy happening on the molecular level among these three organisms and yeah, that setup feels incredibly queer. Like sort of beautiful, but also Nikanja's making Joseph talk like a puppet. <laughs> I know. He well, has that's like the severed his neural, neural connection. So everything he says to Lilith, Joseph is saying too. It's so creepy. <laughs> it's very creepy. And I mean, Joseph's very resistant to this whole process, even though it's written as being like this inevitability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not queer to me. OMG, Octavia Butler giving us everything all at once, <laughs> as usual. <laughs> Complexity. Well, so, okay, but overall, I guess, if I can ask this question, even though, you know, it doesn't exactly have an answer, but do you think of this as a queer book? <laughs> Asking the hard-hitting questions, and I'm going to answer by equivocating and saying, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, honestly, no, it is a really complicated question because there are moments of deep identification, I feel, between myself and various different characters in the book. You know, moments where there are angry humans outside and inside there's intimacy and exploration and connection and alien bodies and human bodies. There's so much in here about bodies, like mm. construct bodies and yes. how those are people in the book are viewed really suspiciously by the humans and then even Theo and Kali don't trust the constructs, especially when we get into the third book and we see Uloi constructs who are characterized as a reproductive mistake, Yeah, which also feels really queer to me. So much of that is here, but then on the flip side, within the characters who are queer, there are non-consensual relationships, this kind of inevitability towards the Owen Kali completing this generations-long process of trade and assimilating the DNA of the human species. Mm. And even those very construct characters are participating in those same non-consensual relationships by seeking out humans mm-hmm. and kind of chemically forcing them into these throuples that they live in. Yeah, uh, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Neuromancing. <laughs> Neuromancing you into a thruple. 
Yeah, I mean, like, I, I do feel empowered by what E said to be like, you know, neuromance me into a thruple, please. Like, but <laughs> yes, <fair. laughs> in fantasy, right? Like the idea there was like, we can have a fantasy about like, what it would feel like if that happened. But then if I imagined happening to like the reality version of me, I would be very no, you know? Yeah, 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 fair. I, and I, I and, and I think that distinction is like, totally valid and important. I, I feel like the the way that you're answering that question kind of brings up this idea in my mind of like what normative is, like how normativity is constructed in, in these books. And there's three of them, right? And we are looking at this generations long project over the course of the three books, which is like big Octavia Butler moves to like look at something over generations. Right, right. And I feel like when I think of the first book, what normativity is, there's this sort of classic sci-fi resistance narrative where the aliens are like these colonial overlords that have this project for humans and then the humans have to make choices about like how to resist while also sort of figuring out how to survive again because it's butler that's not just this straightforward like and then we formed the resistance and we all found our guns on earth and like you know (laughs) set up our fort instead it's got these super complicated moments of like the mob at the living wall while there's queer sex happening inside that's sort of non-consensual. <laughs> like it's right. Just, it's just not that thing. But then in the second and third book, what's normative, I think, shifts. And instead, there's this sort of normative household that is the five parent household of the Owen Kali human construct family. And like they're having all of these children and they're living in these towns that are partly spaceships that are alive and like and then the the construct children, as you're saying, like there's this huge emphasis on like puberty, how you don't know what's going to happen. And there's mm-hmm. this kind of conflict between these parents, including these alien parents who think they know. Right. And these kids who are like, I'm trying to figure out what I am. Yeah. Like hearing you say that is making me think that there is this way in which the idea of this contradiction that humans have you know, mm-hmm. being highly intelligent and highly hierarchical. Mm-hmm. Just the idea of a contradiction is carried out in all of these different situations in the book. The Owen Kali have a contradiction. They're like super queer and super non-consensual at the same time. Mm. And every situation in the book puts you kind of in sympathy slash antipathy with each character, each society, each interaction in the same way that we're explicitly staged to feel about humanity. Oh, man, that's so true. Yeah, there's no one place that you can go that feels safe from that complexity. From like the question of are we being consistent? Are we being moral? Are we being ethical? Are we living out like a utopian imperative? Exactly. Yeah, there's no Mm. purity anywhere here. Mm. So the idea of a utopia is coming along with kind of an acknowledgement across the entire narrative that purity is not going to be a part of it. Like, there's always going to be a contradiction. I mean, I don't think that the Oan Kali know that they have a contradiction. Like they don't think of themselves as rigid. Like they have this whole narrative that they talk about all the time about the value of life and desire is such an important part of their their whole social system and of their biology. Like, I don't know, coming from, coming from the culture I come from, it's very like interesting and exciting and it feels super paradigm busting the ways in which they just acknowledge desire as a part of their social systems. Mm. but also as much as they acknowledge desire they also think they know better than everybody else right 
all right, the time. Right. And then make decisions for people based on what they think they know. Maybe their contradiction is like, they're really nice and they're really condescending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But one of the things I'm thinking here, and again, in light of like this idea of our relationship with fantasy is mm. just my role as a reader in that space. Mm. And thinking about Butler too, who, I mean, clearly has this sense of total fraught sympathy, antipathy, contradiction feeling about humans. Like as a Black woman in America, living with this legacy of, talk about like non-consensual sex as a weapon of control. Right. And like pregnancy as a weapon of control. Just like the recognition of Butler as a post-colonial subject, right? You know, in, in American slavery, like right. the kind of ways that Black women's bodies were instrumentalized in maintaining that system and Black women's emotions about their children. And scholars have, have written about this, but like are really underneath a lot of Lilith's thinking and decision making. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. Like this contradiction idea feels like totally situated in her themes, what she's interested in exploring as a black woman author she's like why do people suck so much Mm. and also why can't i totally write off humanity for sucking right like it feels like she wanted to create another version of that intractable problem that she labors under as an artist but totally defamiliarizing it as this (laughs) tentacly (laughs) DNA manipulating group of aliens so we can think through it in this other frame. In a way, like taking that on as a way of thinking about humanity too, like really feeling like grossed out, but then also turned on, like just all of these different simultaneous feelings going on and not thinking of humanity in terms of we have the good people over here and I'm with those people. Mm-hmm. And then over here, there's some bad people, but like, I'm not, I'm not over there with them. Yeah. And I just keep returning in my mind to the way that you were describing the, the there's no resting place. Like there's no space where you can stand and be like, this is firm ground of righteousness. And there's a way in which like that construction feels as a book. Is it a queer book? Like, yes, the book is queer. Like, yeah. <laughs> because it just is relentlessly non-binary. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but I mean, that's an interesting statement. And I think it might be worth exploring that a little bit because I also think that it might be able to be characterized as hyper binary. Ooh. (laughs) Because like there's also a really, really strong gender binary. Yeah. That's inherent to the contemplations of human relationships. And the aliens have a gender binary. The aliens have like a gender trinary. Yeah. One of the aliens, you're just like, why? Why? <laughs> Which is the male alien. <laughs> like, what? Right. What do do? I guess the, or, or the only male even remotely Owen Kali character we ever spend a lot of time with is Aiken in the second novel. Um, and he's a construct. And his maleness is sort of summarized as like, he is a traveler. <laughs> He wanders around explaining things. No, no, I'm yeah, just kidding. Yeah, and twisting people with his tongue. I love, I love him, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that same thing, right, where it's like good and bad, strange and wonderful, and mm-hmm. he's so alone. Yeah. Um, that character, because he's different. Well, he's the first male construct born to be human. The Owen Collier are afraid of, of human-born males. Right. Because right. the initial experiences that they have with them is just these 
just shockingly violent and stupid <laughs> and short-sighted and power-mongering creatures. And they're just right. like, maybe we're going to not make any super strong ones yet. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it does make you wonder why they needed any at this point. <laughs> but I'm just saying they could have just not made any and then have Owen Colley have two female partners. I Like, I don't know why that's a problem. Somebody's got to explain. We have the <laughs> biological imperative to have <laughs> the person who talks first in the meeting. I love how you and I are just like, but why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> we want to ask Octavia Butler this question. Well, desire, maybe, you know? Like, I don't know if I'm thinking about, like, why Octavia Butler is interested in thinking about men. Sure. I think where I get hung up is just the fact that it's really connected in this book with biology. Yes. And I love thinking about masculinity as not that. Yeah. For yeah, obvious yeah. reasons. But then w- this kind of stirs around in ideas around biology and biological attraction and biological necessity. And I mean, I get really hung up, you know, like I start thinking about how queer animal biology and animal reproduction can be. Mm -hmm. I don't want to stamp out the necessity of men in the book entirely and say that it's wrong to have written it that way. It just comes back to my own disorientation and confusion around these ideas of biology and then the idea of like linking those to gender, right? Like, right. Not what Butler was necessarily interested in exploring. But. No, for sure. So if I'm hearing you right, it's like I, I was bringing up this idea of like a non-binary. There is no place to rest on one side of an issue right. because there's always complexity in every situation, whether it's sex, whether it's violence, whether it's resistance, colonization. And you always both sympathize with and are repulsed by most of the characters and most of the situations in this book. Yeah. Like up to the point where <laughs> – There's a moment when, like, a child is going through puberty and just turns into, like, a gelatinous slug thing that has to be held together by, like, a naked person, like, lying next to it. And it's just like, (laughs) oh, my God. (laughs) But then You gotta do what you gotta do, you know? But you gotta do what you gotta do in this book. That's exactly it because it's, like, this biological determinism. So I feel like that's sort of what you're saying is, like, if I'm understanding you right, there's this kind of queerness in terms of not being able to settle on anything as, like this is the right and normal way for things to go and for one to feel in a situation like this. But at the same time, weirdly, sex is tied to how you act and what you want and who you want in this very direct and like, people even know they're like, I am a male, so I want to wander. I am Uloi, so I turn into the desires of the person who I'm, interested in. Right. Yes. That's absolutely what I'm saying. Where are the queer Owen Collie is the question I end up asking. And what would it mean to be queer if you were Owen Collie? Not in the sense of saying like Aiken is queer because of being this loner and this different being, but like an alien who in the context of their society would be like, I am other. And I think it's something that the book explores, like in some ways, even though they remain committed to the sort of imperative of desire that is part of Oankali society, I would say that I think Aiken and Jodas and its sibling, Aeor, who's also Uloi, are the kind of queer Oankali as far as they're like, we cannot do this to these people. We cannot just force the entire species 
to hybridize with us. So like Mars is like, it's the gay ghetto, (laughs) but, but it's full of, but it's actually just, just weirdly in, in like, in like full Butlerian fashion, it's like full of rando militia guys. (laughs) Right, right, right. So like, again, maybe it's queer. Yeah, we might need a whole nother planet. We're here, we're queer, and we want to colonize Mars, except we're not going to colonize it because no way. Yeah, I don't like that they eat the Earth. I don't like that. No, it's not nice. Yes. So I think also something that I know you've spoken about before that I wanted to kind of bring into this conversation. Again, this is very metaphorical on the book's part, but while the heteronormative bioessentialism when it comes to mates and pairs and breeding kind of like human queerness is not really existent in the literal sense in these books. I feel like the novel's exploration of disability does like that's where the conversations around consent are a little bit more present and like on the surface. And that's something that you had originally brought into our conversation when we were talking about like what we wanted to discuss. So I wanted to open it up and give you a chance to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I was definitely thinking about that throughout the book in terms of the ways these aliens also non-consensually heal and change people's bodies. Mm -hmm. That's this whole other thread to this. And of course, this is like this epic sci-fi series. So there's so much in it. But one of the things I was thinking about in essentially the fact that the Uloi can interface with you with these DNA manipulating arms and grow new bones. There's a scene where a character with an amputated leg is caused to regrow that leg. Pretty much any problem, any pain, any disease can be fixed. Mm -hmm. But I was just I was thinking about how in some conversations I've heard among disabled writers and folks who write characters of disabled experience in their sci-fi and fantasy work, it feels a little ableist to assume that a disabled character wants their body to be changed. And that's another way where the aliens are coming in without consent and assuming that there is this ideal for the way a person would want to exist and physically navigate their life. Totally. There's nobody who's like explicitly a resistor because of that, but there are resistors who are like, I don't want to be healed. I don't want to be cured. Right. And I think that is really interesting. And Butler is sort of like, you have the right not to be cured. Like that is, that's one of the rights that is being violated here. And and one of the kind of entrees into sympathy for the resistor communities is that people have the right to like have their bodies the way that they are and not have them be like cured to whatever standard the aliens think is like healthful and pure like there's that character who has huntington's there's there's some resistor characters who are definitely not good guys but there's someone who has like some terribly painful liver disease. And Aiken is like, you know that my people could cure you. And he's like, no, I don't want them to touch me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's sort of portrayed as this stubbornness thing. Like, I don't necessarily think that you're supposed to be like, he's right. But I do think that he's sympathetic in that moment because it's like, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't have to accept that. Like, there isn't a right kind of body to have. Yeah, I mean, there's a connection there for me between supposedly healing people and the idea that's introduced elsewhere that Lilith's body, quote unquote, wanted to be pregnant, which Nikhanj just knew by connecting to her and like reading that in something. And right, like, it's like, what in her body said that? 
you know. And like if my body wanted to be pregnant, it's me and my body who interface about that and then I decide. Right, right. <laughs> what we're going to do. Right. Like. But then like the larger question <laughs> is like, what do bodies want to be? And, you know, one thing to remember mm-hmm. in talking about bodies is there's this kind of like mind-body dichotomy, but your brain is your body. Right. So like what you're thinking <laughs> about what your body wants is your body modif- manifesting what it wants. Right. So there can't be this dichotomy where like your one part of you is saying yes and the other part of you is saying no. Like it's all one thing. Yes. Saying yes, no. And I'm in charge of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thinking about that in terms of disability and and this supposed idea of healing. There were parts in the book where I'm like, I can't believe these people are so stubborn. Why are they resisting this? But then later thinking about that, I was like, this is like a moment for me to like reevaluate my own ableism in encountering those mm. characters and myself putting aspersions on what I think that those characters' bodies should be. Yeah. And I think it also really connects to this kind of larger theme of colonialism, right? Like the idea of cure in general as this kind of imperative, like you must move toward the good, whatever that is, right? Then there's always somebody determining what that right body or right society should be. And then, you know, in the in the case of the Oankali and in the case of uh colonial discourse and propaganda, if not reality, like there's this seizing of power on the basis that we're going to be able to make it so, right? Like we're seizing power in order to cure your contradiction. We're seizing power because you're too lazy to to grow enough food on your land. Yeah. <laughs> like Seriously. Like, we're seizing power because you're on your way to hell. I mean, maybe, right, like the contradiction with the Owen Kali is like the negative quality isn't condescension, but colonialism. Mm-hmm. They're super powerful and communal, and they're also colonial. They think they know. They're like parental and reprimanding of humans who destroyed the planet through nuclear war, which I, you know, admittedly, like humanity would not have survived if they hadn't shown up at that moment. But then Mm -hmm. there's this kind of assumption of like, well, now we've judged your entire future and and endowed ourselves with the power to kind of make statements about what's best for you. Right. And it it reads to me as justifying, like justifying what they want to do anyway, which is meld with human DNA and achieve this capacity to change more rapidly and effectively through cancerous cells that they're looking for. And I think that's something that kind of, you know, it's not like something that's argued out on the surface of the narrative, but it's kind of under there. In the second and third books, when they're talking about Mars and when, in fact, Jodas and Aeor are arguing for their right to, like, live, basically. Mm-hmm. Because the thing that the community wants to do, the community of the Owen Kali, they want to make Jodas and Aeor return to the ship and basically live the rest of their lives in prison. Mm-hmm. But what Aeor and Jodas are arguing for is like this possibility of change and possibility of like a slightly less fraught relationship with humanity. And the contradiction as the like excuse for this colonial project is also the thing that that is driving the community's refusal to allow the Mars colony to happen, to allow Jodas and Aeor to exist because... They're like, oh, but those humans, they're going to destroy themselves again. They're not cured. (laughs) 
Like they're only cured if they meld with us and if they give us, they all give us their DNA. So the idea that they have the right way to live and they know the right way to live is what's driving a lot of the non-consensualness of the relationships. Yes. I mean, we're acknowledging that this is a colonial relationship they're in. And yet, obviously, there are things that they are offering that are amazing. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I can't sit here and read this book and not say it's great that they got rid of cancer. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the question is, this is a colonial situation. Could this also be a critical utopia? Are we willing to say that about this story? about this situation? Is this a dystopia? How do we react to the sort of broad idea of of what's been narrated over the course of the three books? I will just say for one thing, like a lot of scholars are like, this is Butler's utopian novel, which I think is interesting. I mean, Butler often struggled with what I think she felt was like this imperative in sci-fi to like write a utopia. And she struggled with like the genre of utopias because she just like didn't believe in it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that this is a book about like, what if, you know, you have this like species that thinks it's offering utopia and thinks it has a utopia. And then the humans are like, we don't want it. Exactly. I don't know. I guess it's because we're finishing up this episode, like at this particular moment after the Supreme Court decision came down. Right. (laughs) If you're not a listener in the United States, um, the Supreme Court is it looks like going to end federal protection for abortions, such as it is in the U.S. So there's this figure that kind of shows up in all these anti-abortion debates, which is that this this unborn person is like who all of this is in the name of. But of course, like that's like, you know, this is a point that people on the left make all the time. It's like a meme, but like it's like an abstract of a person. Like it's way right. easier to sort of advocate for an abstract person than a person who actually like wants things from you and like doesn't want to be patronized and right. and anything that's like all future is all abstract. Oh, interesting. So I don't know. Yeah, like it's making me think about this concept of utopia and like this like morally uncomplicated future that lets you like project whatever you want onto it. And 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 I feel like that's kind of what the Owen Kali are doing when they keep talking about life and they keep talking about like they like there's that part where Nikon just like if we just left a few cells of ourselves on a planet, like it would eventually there would be life there. And he's like saying it in this sort of like awe-filled way. The Owen Kali are like these scions of life and like life is all that matters to them. Like as if that right. means they're fundamentally good. Mm-hmm. Knowing that Butler struggled so hard against the idea of utopianism, it's not surprising that she's got these sort of like utopianists who are also colonizers and whose like life idea is this abstract that like then in the actual application of it, it's like we're going to force you to be pregnant and have tons and tons of babies because it's all about sexual coercion that relies on biological sex. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like we're going to eliminate all the problems, get rid of cancer, but you'll have none of the autonomy or sense of self that accompanies the life you have now. So yeah. And I don't know, it makes me it makes me want to interrogate, I think, like whenever the the idea of utopianism shows up, it makes me want to think a little bit harder about like what function it's playing. Like, is it standing in for the unborn future? You know, like, (laughs) oh, my gosh, seriously, like, uh, is really like what's at the other end of this like I don't know like a Christian summer camp or like, <laughs> like that's what I'm thinking of when you're saying that it's like all these white people in white clothes like, I, I don't know <laughs> one collie sex is all about side hugs oh my god 
It's like instead of leave room for Jesus, it's leave room for the Uloi. <laughs> for my sensory tentacle. <laughs> I I feel like kind of going back to the legacy of like racism and of the sexualization of black women's bodies in the context of slavery. One of the things that I feel like, you know, again, this book is not, it's just never going to let you off without some really uncomfortable feelings. Mm -hmm. So, so so even if we're thinking of this as like a critic, like they've solved these problems, part of the problems that are created from that are just so resonant, like for an American author, a black American author writing and a American audience reading the ghost of the sexual violence of slavery and the violence of slavery broadly, I feel like is just in this book in ways that are really squirmy. Yep. And also in Lilith's character, and I feel like part of what Lilith as a character is doing is kind of offering this character through which we can think about what survival means because she thinks like like she decides to live one of the really creepy things is like the owen collie choose her because they know that she wants to live right they're like that's why you'd make a good leader because you don't want to die you want to survive so you're willing to like compromise with us and it made me just think you know in the context of the podcast more generally like I I wrote this article for Electric Lit a little while ago and I kind of had the occasion in writing it to be thinking about the survival of marginalized people and kind of how it happens and at first I found myself taking the stance of like it happens screw you marginalized people survive and like but then this thing was bothering me of like how how do we survive and sometimes it's in these ways that are really not so nice you know that involve compromise that involve capitulation that involve collaboration that involve like hiding and running like again against this sci-fi trope of like hunkering down in the rebel base with your like x-wing fighters or whatever is the actual reality of survival which is much less neat yeah i mean it feels to me like this counterpoint to some of these narratives around escaping to a hard scrabble planet that is Mm. very difficult to deal with but offers itself up as this site of pure utopian progress and community construction. Mm. In this, which isn't a narrative of like going to another planet, it's about aliens coming here. Butler is presenting us with a thinking through that makes those things part of the magic circle. Like the site of play of ideas is one that contains these uncomfortable truths about how people find a way forward into stories of what could happen next. Yeah. I don't know. Like it's also incredibly powerful that Lilith is so prepared to live, you know? Yeah. And I think one of the things that this novel is saying is like the capacity for change is not a pure thing. Like the capacity for change means survival. It means resilience. It means it means hiding. It means running away. It means being strategic in relationships with those who have way too much power over you in the planning and scheming to create some space for yourself when you can. It it includes all of these things that are not the hero's journey as Joseph Campbell imagined it or like as Hollywood imagines it. And so I feel like the thing that Xenogenesis 
has to say about like Butler's big theme of change and adjusting to change and change is God, right? That comes from Earthseed from the Parable series. In this book, that is played out and explored in a way that kind of shows all of the creepy, icky, uncomfortable, heroic, compromised facets of that. (laughs) What's so interesting about that is I remember reading the parable books and thinking in the context of Earthseed and the idea of God as change. I thought of change as being this external thing. Like Mm. at any moment, people are going to come over the horizon and come into your compound and try to get food. Right. And I feel like here, like what you're getting me to is like, there is this other sense of change. And there's this other sense of the idea of God is change that is engaged here with like an internal exploration of change. Mm. So just thinking about change in terms of like the internal changes you make within yourself in order to strategize and survive. And then Mm -hmm. also species level change, this idea of the potential of humanity somehow changing and thinking about God as this divine capacity for us to maybe move beyond the contradiction. Yeah, Lilith's super strength, the thing that she has to take on in her body in order to, and her pregnancies, her many, many pregnancies Mm -hmm. as this like very specific bodily endurance of change in part of like the generation of like enough time, enough learning to create space for this species level change. I don't know. In my like, I read a lot of theory brain there's this idea of like queerness as kind of anti-reproduction. Like we don't just want to like reproduce the systems that have been handed to us. Right. And that's like one version of queerness. And the Owen Collier are like, no, 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 no. You don't have to reproduce them. You'll make something new. But like there's this like very destabilizing refusal to be like reassured by the idea that there's like going to be life. Yeah. I mean, it kind of asks a question of is turning into something totally different annihilation. Yeah. And I think that what this book ultimately says is it's not annihilation. Mm-hmm. But but that doesn't mean it's not really, really hard. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. (laughs) To me, there's something about her that feels like it can also provide a kind of witnessing to the compromises that we end up having to make in our lives just Mm -hmm. to exist as people in this moment under late capitalism. I feel witnessed by a character who lives as compromise. Because the flip side of the purity, like moral right is, oh, I'm a moral bad. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. and there's no space for any level of understanding or grace. And I feel like that's where I end up when I get into that binary thinking. And Mm -hmm. it's like, look, you think you have a lot more control than you do. Mm. And compromise is it. It is the thing. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a little bit of the message of what that character is. Yeah. There's so much that she can't control, but there's also so much that she wants. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the thing about Lilith's survival is this moving in the direction of desire, attention to desire and attention to love, you know, like even if the love is in the context of this system that is like kind of flips the word and makes it hard to understand exactly what that even means. I mean, just as always, I feel like Butler is fucking with my sense of what happens first, next, and after predictability, what the future holds, like what 
change means in a way that like even if it doesn't solve any of my problems with being alive, <laughs> like does um like does at least reflect them. Like that sense of like fundamental compromise, which I think is definitely something I feel constantly. I mean, there's so many ways in which we feel ourselves to be overwhelmed by systems that ignore our refusals. Mm, Yes, absolutely. So yeah, given that this is life, like given that this is what we have, how do we make brave and loving decisions and decisions that come from a place of desire and how do we accept that what comes out of those decisions is not going to be pure good (laughs) exactly yes oof well all right nat uloi hot or not (laughs) (laughs) there's which uloi are you are you referring to (laughs) it matters This has been Queers at the End of the World. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa. Get in touch for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode is La Fin des Ericotes by Tintamare. The show is produced and edited by me, Nino McQuown, with marketing and technical wizardry by Nat Mesnard. We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. Our website is queerworlds.com, and you can email us directly at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. Good luck out there, dear hearts. Definitely not that condescending ass Uloi who's always like, silly human. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the one that she encounters at the beginning that's like the parent of Nikanj feels distinctly yeah. not hot to me. I think Nikanj is hot. Yeah, Nikanj is hot. I'm also, I have to say, I'm not into Aeor. Well, Aeor, Aeor is, is a like, slug, so. No, they're just so thirsty. <laughs> like, that love. Oh, <laughs> like, like just got to my hut. They're they're like <laughs> a toxic relationship. Yeah, be with me or I'll disintegrate. Like, if you need to be a slug, be a slug. Yeah. That is not my problem. Self esteem. <laughs> if I was gonna pick any Uloi in the entire book, though, it would probably be that giant machine slug engineer entity. Oh my gosh, that one is so hot. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I imagine him like being like a giant alien slug engineer entity, but also having a little engineer hat. Uh, like a yellow hard hat. Oh, it could be a yellow hard hat, but then sometimes it's also like one of those like train conductor caps. It's like blue and oh, white. that kind of engineer. I'm in love now. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, Nat, we're misgendering the Uloi again.